We're going to be in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Think about that weekend. Wow. They couldn't go back to the tomb the next morning because the next morning was Shabbat and they had to kind of hunker down for Sabbath. It was a high Sabbath. We talked about that Sunday. And just my thoughts ranging through where we're gonna go tonight and what the, the teaching is, thinking about Peter and John and, and Mary and the other disciples, mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, uh, all of those who, who witnessed this horrific thing on Friday evening and then having to wake up Saturday morning and not even go check on the tomb or, or see what's going on and, and feeling like the whole thing was done brutally and then so hurriedly and, and then to wake up Sunday morning with the desire to go and have no idea what had happened. And how often isn't it like that in our lives where we think there's no way it could possibly get any worse and we have no idea what God has already done until we show up. We go to the tomb with a certain expectation and the resurrection's already happened. God has already done the miraculous. I guess it's that whole idea of the, you know, it's always darkest right before dawn and we see the dark. We don't see the resurrected Savior. We just see the issue before us. We see the death. We see the grave. We see the tomb. We see the impossibility of the situation, whatever it is. And that's how they all woke up that morning. And yet we come to John chapter 20 and it's absolutely wonderful. John 20, verse one, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Holy Father, we could just stop right there and marvel for the rest of the night at what had already happened before anyone even arrived, before the first woman showed up, before the rest of the women, according to the gospels, Lord would show up. And, and then the apostles who, who ran to see and, and all the back and forth and the craziness of the day and the crazy talk that Jesus was resurrected and some had even seen you, Lord, before all of that, it was done. Not only was it finished as you proclaimed on the cross, but it was done, the resurrection before anyone had even arrived. I pray that you give us faith before we get to the tomb. I pray that you would give us faith before we see what you've done. And I ask that that faith would even increase here tonight as we study through these verses. Would you take us back, Lord, for the purpose of taking us forward in our faith? In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the thing, the truth about trust is that it does not depend upon the eyes. It doesn't depend on what you see. This is a stand, this is Christianity 101. This is as basic as it gets. But listen to the Lord on this, Isaiah 55, verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God doesn't say, so will my video be which goes forth from my production company. 
So does my Blu-ray function. No, he says, so will my word do exactly what I sent it to do. Explaining the parable of the sower. Jesus said in Luke chapter eight, verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And in verse 15 of Luke chapter eight, he says, the seed in the good soil, oh, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. True hearing, as in the Shema, hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The Shema, the hear. But as we've talked about, hearing in Hebrew is not just hearing, it's hearing with obedience. It's hearing and acting upon it. So it's hearing the word in an honest and good heart and holding it fast. And that's how it bears fruit. The word functions like seed in the soil received, and then we don't see. We don't see, but it begins to produce, and it bears faith. While relating a surprising and, I believe, true story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus in Sheol, Jesus says, Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If they don't hear, they're not gonna be persuaded by what they see. So the hearing has to come first. Revelation 2, 7, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I wanna tell you up front, what's gonna happen here in John chapter 20 is the Holy Spirit's about to call an audible. Now this is American football terminology. I have to say American football now because when I say football at home, if I don't say American football, Chris thinks I'm talking about soccer. So American football, NFL stuff. An audible, many of you know, if you don't know, that's when the quarterback looks over the field and see the defense has moved in such a way that the play that they called back in the huddle isn't the best option, so he calls an audible. And everybody shifts their thinking, oh, we're going this way, we're doing it that way, rather than what we had talked about, because he sees something that we don't see. So he calls a play change, an audible. And it's, it's not a perfect example because God does not change his play based on what the enemy does. See, the reality is that God has already set in motion exactly what he's gonna do before the foundation of the earth, and that's not gonna change. But he will call an audible in your life. He will send you a direction that you didn't expect. Well, Lord, I thought we were going this way. Yeah, but we're gonna do this instead. And, and the way that I, I see this fitting is that after God does that, as he changes the way we think, he does so because he sees the field. I don't see the field. That's why an audible works. See, the players down, you know, squatted down, ready to charge forward, they see the guy in front of them, maybe the guy to the right and to the left. They're not seeing, their peripherals only go so far, right? They're helmet to helmet, ready to make a play, and the quarterback is above all of it, and he sees what's coming. So the players have to learn to hear him and to trust what he's telling them to do. That player quarterback trust is, is vital for the team. Listen to the QB, trust him when he calls an audible. And it's Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And what's about to happen here is the Holy Spirit's gonna drop us on the one yard line, right on the verge of victory and call an audible. So listen up. I'm gonna read you this story as it was originally written 
So just note this. In fact, if you're looking at an NASB, you might notice by a bunch of the words going down the first several verses, first 10 or so, actually it goes a little beyond that, you'll see a tiny little star. See it a couple of times in the first verse, right by the word came and the word was. You'll see a little star by ran and came in the second verse. And on down, every time you see that little star, that's the NASB translator's way of saying this is actually present tense, but we change it to past tense because it flows better in the English. Let me read it to you the way it was written. Check this out. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb while it is still dark and sees the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and says to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two men were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John wants us to know who won. And stooping and looking in, he sees the linen wrappings lying there, but did not go in. So Simon Peter also comes following him and entered the tomb, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there, and his face cloth, the face cloth, face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, and so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must, be, that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their homes. And the reason it's written this way with all these C's instead of saw, and if you're going back and forth trying to understand it, you might feel like you're on a seesaw, but it's just C. Present tense, it's exciting, it's engaging. It pulls you into the story vicariously as if you're right there, as if you're with Peter running to the tomb and seeing John out ahead of you going, that's not fair, man. You know, it's, it's present tense. It's present tense. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ present tense in your life today? Is your relationship with Jesus present tense? For some people, it's not. For some people, it's past tense. That's how I was raised. Well, that's a past tense faith. For some people, it's so future tense that they're so focused on everything ahead, I tend to lean that way, but so looking forward to the sweet by and by that they're really not even paying attention to right now. Jesus is present tense. God is I am. And so we're in the middle right now of the narrative of our salvation. We are in the middle of the story of God's grace. Okay, forget I said in the middle. We're at the end of it, but it's still present tense. It's present tense. Jesus is right here, right now. In fact, if you're stressed about anything, I love this from Jesus, Matthew chapter six, verse 34. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Just deal with today. Present tense, Jesus here and now. Paul said in Galatians 5, 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit, which is something you can only do one day at a time. Ephesians 5, 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Yes, we're invited to be those who love his appearing, who talk about the rapture of the church and being caught up to be home with Jesus, to, to talk about the kingdom and recognize we're in preparation for that, to look ahead to the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and all that's coming before us, which is so epic, it blows away this puny, minuscule time that we spend on the earth. But though we look forward with that joy, that's the hope that causes us to live with Jesus right now. 
That's, as we've talked about many times, the motivating factor to walk with Jesus in the present tense. So I'm not back in my old days and I'm not out ahead. I'm right here and now with Jesus. This is where he has you. This is where he has me in the present. So, We've already done the first 10 verses, let's just keep going. No, I'm kidding. Let's look at this. Think about this for a minute. What just took place there in those 10 verses, in this opening foray of this resurrection day? First of all, note that it was on the first day of the week. John points that out. So does Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All four gospels use the exact same phrase on the first day of the week. Now they do this because the first day of the week being Sunday, obviously, that's, that's the first day by Jewish reckoning. Shabbat is the last day of the week, so day one is always on Sunday. Christians for 2,000 years have chosen to gather together and worship Jesus on Sunday. Listen, not because it was commanded. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us we have to meet on Sunday. We could meet on Monday morning if you want, you know? We're meeting right now on a Wednesday night. We're not commanded to meet Sunday. We choose to meet on Sunday because it marks the first day of eternal life. You know, it's the first day of the week, but it's the first day of eternal life as bought in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. The first day of the week. I love that all four resurrection accounts begin with that statement. This is the first day, baby. The first day out. First day of the week. Secondly, note that John really gets into Mary's personal space. And what I mean by that is that the other gospel narratives, if you read through and compare to John, we see several women, right, going to the tomb together, all heading there. In fact, if you look at it, it's, it's kind of difficult to, to put together. There's an easy way to do it, but, but you see this group of women, and then you see this group, and then here you see Mary's there before it's even the light of day, but there's another group that comes when it is daylight or just at the break of day. So what's happening here? I think they're just all over the place. You know, you've got, a, you've got Mary first, and John finally lets us know she was the first one to the tomb. She was there before it was even light. And then she goes back and perhaps runs into another group who are going to the tomb, and then they all go together. And another group comes, and they meet up, and there's this back and forth, and, and I think probably a whole lot more even than what the Bible tells us of this Word getting out and, and those who loved Jesus who were closest to him running back and forth to the tomb. Gotta see for ourselves. But all we get from John and truly from the other gospel writers too, we get personal stories. We don't get the whole thing laid out in a chronology and in a historical account that covers every possible nuance of what took place. We get personal stories. John gets into Mary's personal space and all we see is Mary at the very beginning, Mary alone, there in the dark, at the she gets to the tomb, and in the darkness she looks, and the stone's rolled away, and she hightails it out of there. What's going on? Probably smart enough not to go into the tomb, maybe there's some Romans in there, grave robbers. In fact, did you know that in, in Rome of the first century, it was capital punishment to rob from the grave? So there, there was quite a threat that was leveled to anyone who would do something like that. Who knows what Mary's thinking? All we know is that she sees the stone is rolled away from the tomb. But what's interesting, if you want to piece together that this is not contradictory, look at verse two and notice the fact that when she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, 
we've been assuming, and I think rightly so, John. She says to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So there's a we involved here. There's more than just Mary. But Mary's the one that John is focusing on, and there's a reason for that. In fact, it's a very, very personal faith experience that we'll get more into in a bit later. And John will also explain why he's being one person at a time. A third thing to note, and I already kind of pointed this out, but John won the race. Verse four. Peter broke the tape in verse seven. John's the first one there, but Peter blows right by him and goes right down into the tomb, which really tells you something about their personalities. But I wonder why is this verse even here? I mean, I've laughed about it before. It always, it always tickles me. You know, that John has the, the presence of mind, some, you know, what are we talking, 60 years after the fact to say, and by the way, I, I won. <laughs> Wanted you to know, I was a little more fleet-footed than Peter was. I got there first, and, you know, he comes up, you know, huffing and a-puffing just to get there. Why did he mention this? And it, it, maybe John's just pushing it a little bit. I mean, he's also the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he's most loved and he's the fastest, right? <laughs> the true winner of the resurrection marathon that morning. This is the language of an eyewitness, okay? This is what happened. This is the passion and personality of both men on display. John got there first because John was just, he was just full out. But when he got there, he was a little startled by what he saw. Peter comes up right behind him and doesn't even stop, doesn't pause, doesn't look. John's kind of looking in. Peter, he's in there. I don't care if I get defiled. I could care less. This is Jesus we're talking about. And in he goes. And we see this personality in the men and we just, again, we get this taste of the actual account. Real people having a real amazing experience. A fourth thing to note here, Number four, there's an obvious shift of faith. And this is really cool. And some of you Bible students, you've heard this before, but I wanna go back over this for you. And if you've never heard this, you wanna note this, jot it down, that all these little C's or, or saw with the little star beside it are not the same word. That they're different almost every time you see them. There's a shift that begins to happen faith-wise before anybody sees Jesus. Before the lineman sees the play unfold, he hears what the quarterback says. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is all about hearing, though John really focuses on seeing. Watch this. Verses one and five, we see that word sees. Mary sees the stone rolled away. Verse five, John sees the linen wrappings through the entrance, he sees that. So he's, he's close enough to the entrance that he looks in and he can see there on what would normally be the place where the body was laid out, the shelf inside that tomb, he sees the linen wrappings. That word see is blepo. So you've got groucho, you've got harpo, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> blepo in the Greek is the most common word for see. If you just see something, you're driving down the road and you see a bird fly by, blepo, I saw a bird. Okay, I see the grass, blepo. It's not a, it's a very, very common Greek word. Doesn't really mean a whole lot other than you just see visibly, physically with your eyes. 
But then in verses six and seven, when Peter comes and actually enters the tomb, it says he sees the linen wrappings. Again, present tense. That word see is different. Now it's theoreo. Theoreo, where we get our word theory. Because when Peter goes in, he's not, he doesn't just see it, he's thinking about it. He's conjecturing, he's supposing, he's pondering, he's studying the scene. And, and, and something's going on in his brain that is beyond just seeing it. He's theorizing, if you will. He's formulating speculations as to what he sees there in the tomb. What did he see? What did John see when he looked in the opening of the tomb? The Bible's very clear. In fact, John tells us exactly what both men saw. John saw the linen, linen wrappings lying there, and then Peter sees the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. And this is interesting. It's very specific what both men saw. In the north city of Turin in Italy today, you could visit and see the Shroud of Turin. Now, it's actually toured the world a few times, but the Shroud of Turin resides there in Turin, Italy, and it is a 14-foot-long burial shroud. So it is a, a burial shroud that literally goes beyond head to toe, and it has the imprint on it, and the reason why it's so famous and why it's been touted by so many, and especially in the Catholic Church, this is the shroud of Christ. This is the shroud of Jesus, they say. And, and they've believed that since 1353 A.D., when it was discovered, the Shroud of Turin or Turan. And it has the imprint on it of a crucified body and a face. And those who believe that it is the Shroud of Christ, they say that's the face of Jesus and that's the imprint of his crucified body. What do you think? Not to be a wet blanket, but it doesn't fit the biblical description. It just doesn't fit. Now, I, could it possibly be? I guess there's an outside chance. I think it's quite unlikely that that's the actual burial shroud of Jesus because Jesus, according to scripture, was not buried with a burial shroud. He was wrapped in linen. He was buried the way, that the main way that Jewish people would, would bury. And, and so, Think about the, the gospel description. Go, go with Peter for a moment into the tomb and look at what's lying there. The linen wrappings were lying there or were, were settled there. And the face cloth was rolled up by itself like an unwanted napkin. By the way, that's just kind of Hebrew culture, Hebrew custom in the Middle East of the first century that if you went to dinner at someone's house and you had an excellent meal, you know, kind of like in, I think it's Germany, after the meal, you just belch to let them know, thank you. I really think it's a custom we need to reintroduce in the States. I've tried at home, it doesn't seem to go over well. But what you would do if you had a great dinner at someone's home is, man, you'd use that napkin and you'd just toss it disheveled on the plate. Man, that was a good meal. If it was not a good meal, You'd roll it up and set it aside. It was a way of saying, I am not eating in this establishment ever again. 
So Peter looks and he sees the faith, face cloth rolled up there in the tomb as if Jesus is saying, I'm not coming back to this establishment ever again. But think about how it's laid out and what we're seeing there. The linen wrappings were not head to toe a single sheet. In fact, the word for linen wrappings in the Greek is othonion. It's a plural, form, plural word for linen strips. The linen wrappings, linen strips. They were strips of linen. I mentioned this on Sunday, synonymous with swaddling clothes. And they took one strip and they ran it through that mixture of, of aloes and myrrh and they took that strip and they'd wrap around the foot and then they'd continue all the way. They wrapped each leg separately, each arm separately and then they would wrap the whole body and bring it all the way up to the face and then they put the face cloth over the face. And what we see there, and, and I've, I've mentioned this, that the myrrh and aloes soaked wrappings would create somewhat of a cocoon over the body. But it wouldn't be a hardened shell. Something I joked about on Sunday was, you know, the paper mache eggs that we made for Easter when we were in elementary school. Some of you did this. I never did it to any avail. My egg always collapsed. You'd, you'd, yeah, you'd make it right, and you'd take the pen, and you'd stick it in to pop the balloon, and you'd be like, look at this egg, and I'd pop the balloon, and it would go. <laughs> I'm like, that's terrible. It's really marred me for most of my life. <laughs> The body's gone, what happens to that cocoon? It's most likely collapsed. When they look in the tomb, they're not seeing linen wrappings thrown all over the place as, as though someone woke from a swoon or, or, or from you know, a, a moment there of, of or, or a couple of days of being in a coma, suddenly waking up and going, ah, and tearing that off. No, it was just there, settled, right where it should be. But I think, I, this is Rick's thinking, that you had this shape, body-shaped, collapsed cocoon with a face cloth intentionally rolled up and set to its side. So amazing. If we had been in the tomb, what would we have seen? Peter's looking at this, and he's theorizing. And he's hypothesizing and he's trying to comprehend what his eyes are seeing. And it's 50 days later that Peter will preach what his ears had already heard even before his eyes saw what he saw. Listen to this. Acts chapter two, verse 22, Peter says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and then Peter quotes what he had heard. I saw the Lord always at my right, in my presence, Psalm 16, verse eight. For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter, as a Jew, had heard that. It was a common psalm, known and understood, a psalm of David. 
But then Peter says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Notice in the sermon of Peter that first he talks about what he heard, Psalm 16, and then he describes what he saw as an eyewitness. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, Back in John 20, history tells us of no attempt to exhume the body, which you'd think would be the first thing that would happen to prove that this whole thing was a lie, was untrue. Or there would at least be an investigation into what had taken place. What history does tell us is the disciples, the enemies, and even the Roman authorities agree on the same thing. The body of Jesus had left the building. His body was no longer there. And that is agreed upon, and that is history. And I, I, I've told you, I love this, that, that talking to our dear friend Roni in Israel, Roni says, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus resurrected. Well, how can you believe that, Roni? Because he, he believes that, but he is not at a point, as, as he told me this last time, where he believes in his heart. But he said, but I, I know, I know that, Jesus rose from the dead. How do you know that, Roni? I asked. He said, because there's not one single historical record of anyone refuting that. There's nothing in archaeology that disputes it from back at the time. No one said it didn't happen. So you have to assume it did. That's good thinking. It's very logical. The body of Jesus had left the building. Mary and John they saw the tomb with the naked eye, but Peter saw and his mind began to spin out speculations. What's going on? Something's different. Something's, how is this? I'm I, trying to make sense of what he was seeing. He's theorizing. Finally, in verse eight, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, John wants to make sure if you miss verse four, he tells you again. <laughs> then also entered and he saw and believed. And there saw it's interesting, now it's no longer present tense, it's the aorist tense, which is past tense, but it's past tense continuing to the present and to the future. He saw and believed, but that word saw is not blepo, and it's not theoreo, it's idon, idon. From the original word oidia, where we get our word idea. John got the idea. The Greek word for see as in idea, ido, it, it, it is to see with understanding. To see and get it. When John went into the tomb, what he declares here in verse eight, now he's looking back over a long time. And by the way, I'll tell you something. The older I get, the more I know what I was really thinking when I was younger. It's really a weird dynamic. I know where my heart was as a 10-year-old when I gave my life to Jesus. I didn't know where my heart was as a 10-year-old when I gave my life to Jesus when I was 16, but I know now. I can't explain that except to say the way our minds work, we can look back and know. John now, as he's writing this gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knows the moment that faith came into his heart, and it's verse eight. John 
saw, got the idea, and he believed. He saw and he believed. You should underline that in your Bibles. He saw and believed. But there's a problem because verse nine says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Well, did he see and believe or not? He saw and believed, but they didn't understand. No, wait a minute. You're contradicting yourself, John. Well, one possible solution is just to note that he says, as yet they did not understand the scripture, but in that moment was when he did. I don't think that's the explanation. I think the explanation, very simply, is that John saw and believed without understanding. Now, I'm gonna say this to you, and, and it is, I, I gotta refute something here. The whole idea of faith being blind. Faith is a blind leap. I see where, where the critics get that because, listen to me, faith does not depend on understanding. Understanding will always shore up faith. It will always build and strengthen faith. But faith doesn't come out of understanding. If someone is not willing to believe, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, my dear friend Roni, he knows the facts. He knows the evidence. But the distance of 18 inches from the head to the heart is a long way to go sometimes. You can know, you can even understand and not have faith. Because faith is trusting I love how Carson puts it. He says, John relates his own coming to faith in the once dead, now resurrected Messiah. Even as he ruefully confesses the paucity or the meagerness of his understanding of scripture at this juncture. John's saying, I saw and believed, but I didn't have a clue what was going on. I didn't understand. I just knew Jesus is resurrected from the dead, but he hadn't yet put that together with the scripture that he had heard. He hadn't yet Worked it all out. He didn't have all the facts in place. He just saw, and that's when faith came. Because faith is a supernatural thing. This is the beauty of faith. God gives it to you. He gives it to you. He doesn't force it on you. You're not just gonna one day be walking down the street and go, I believe in Jesus. Oh, man, he got me. He gives it to you. He gives it to the heart that's open. He gives it to the person who's asking. I've often said to people who are like, I, I just, I can't believe in Jesus. I've often said, then pray that you will. Ask God to give you the faith to trust him. Because that's what faith is. Faith isn't about putting the facts together. Faith is about trusting your life over to God. It's about going, okay, I believe faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And John heard the word of Christ from Christ. He had been hearing the word of Christ from Christ for three, three plus years. He'd been saturated in the word of Christ. So I, I submit to you that in this moment, his eyes were opened by what he had heard. Hearing came first so that when he looked into the tomb and saw the linen wrappings and saw the rolled up face napkin, he believed that Jesus was resurrected, which is exactly what Jesus had been saying would happen. He didn't comprehend, he didn't understand, but he believed the resurrection had taken place in that moment. It's like what happened to Peter up at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And he stands there. I know he had to have that stupid grin on his face waiting for his gold star. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven Peter, you just spoke the great statement of faith, the faith on which the entire church is gonna be built. That's the rock, that statement of faith. But that faith was given to you, Peter. It didn't come from you. It came from my father who dropped it into your heart and you spoke it out. Faith is given by the father, which is why Paul writes in Romans 115, no, sorry, 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, do you see the gospel? No, you hear the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. For in it, verse 17, Romans chapter one, the righteousness of God is revealed how? From faith to faith. I receive faith, and that faith grows into more faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What if I lack faith? As I said before, ask for it. And the beauty of that is a non-believer can simply, without doing anything, just say, God, if you're real, give me faith to believe in you. A believer who's struggling to trust God because life is not going the way I thought it was gonna go, the believer who's struggling to know that God really has his or her best interest in mind, that believer can say, Lord, I'm struggling with faith. Would you give me more faith for what's about to come? Would you give me more faith in this situation? He'll do it. He will give you the faith you need to see you through the day. Again, all the facts before our eyes won't develop trust in the Lord. Once we're willing to trust him, yes, fact and, and evidence and proof, these things were, will bolster faith because it's all true. It's all rock solid true. It's all absolutely true. But I've yet to see anyone talked into entrusting their life to Jesus. You're not gonna talk someone into it. Faith has to come. Well, picking up in verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Now, wait a minute. Verse one says she came to the tomb while it was still dark. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 11, she's back at the tomb. Okay, I have no problem with that. She has now made her way back to the tomb. I think it's interesting that Peter and John, having heard from Mary, take off running and just leave her in the dust. So Mary gathers up herself and follows on back to the tomb. So she now is still there. And they come out of the tomb bewildered. Peter is theorizing, and John has the idea, but they head off. And Mary's standing here, still at the tomb, and John gets really personal in telling Mary's story. She's standing outside the tomb, weeping, verse 11, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she sees, and we're right back to present tense. So we're back in that place of, of this present tense moment. And she sees. That word sees is theoreo. So Mary sees and begins to speculate based on what she's seeing. She's contemplating the scene in the tomb. She sees, verse 12, two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying 
Why? What does she see? You Bible students know the answer to this? It's the mercy seat. She sees the visual, physical, actual representation before her of God's design for the mercy seat that sat atop the Ark of the Covenant. Two angels, one on each side, one at the head and one at the foot. All crafted in gold. Well, I'll, I'll just read it to you. Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat, and their wings are, and are, with their wings facing one another, and the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark, you will put the testimony which I'll give you, and there I will meet with you. I'll meet with you at the place of mercy. And Mary now, weeping, overwrought, alone, has gone into the tomb, and this is what she sees. Now listen, whether she got it or not, John doesn't tell us. She's speculating, she's theorizing. Maybe what ran through her mind in that moment was, this is like the ark. What would have run through my mind in the moment was, ah! <laughs> right? Angels, what is going on here? But she's theorizing. She sees this, and she's, she's weeping, and she's, again, she's overwrought. But whether she saw it as the fulfillment of the divine design, which it was, or not, the mercy of God operates by the resurrection of Jesus. That's how the mercy really comes to fruition in history is the resurrected Christ that he destroyed death and now God's mercy is offered to anyone who will have faith that he resurrected, who will believe in the resurrected Jesus. By the way, one other thing, note this in John chapter 10 that the two angels are sitting and it's the only time in the entire Bible where angels are sitting. Everywhere else that you see, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in a minute, Everywhere else that you see angels, they are never seated except here at the place of the burial of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. So again, back in John chapter 20, verse 13, and they said to her, the angels, woman, why are you weeping? She says to them, so it's not they said to her, they say to her, so we're still present tense through the rest of this section. They say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She says to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and she sees Jesus standing and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Okay, so let's just assume that human beings in the first century were a little smaller than we are, which we think, you know, based on archaeology, they probably were not quite as tall, maybe a little bit shorter, maybe not weighing as much as, you know, as your average American. And, and so Jesus, what, 150 pounds, maybe? 160, somewhere in there? With 100 pounds of, you know, the aloes and spices and everything, 
in the body, all wrapped. This is not a light situation. And she's saying to the gardener, tell me where he is, I'll get him. <laughs> she is not thinking. She's not thinking. Mary, how are you gonna go get the body of Jesus? How are you gonna go get him and carry him? What are you thinking? She's not thinking. And that, that is further proven by the fact that now two angels and this unknown gardener, she, she assumes, are talking to her and she's not seeing anything. She's not reacting to the angels. She's just grieving. Mary is in this place of intense grief. The angels, they say, woman, why are you weeping? And then Jesus himself says, woman, why are you weeping? Listen, this is not insensitive. I mean, my, my initial reaction to the question is, um, <laughs> tomb? What do you mean, why are you weeping? She's at the tomb. This is this, there's been this great loss. Jesus isn't being insensitive, nor were the angels. They're not trying to get her to use her faith to snap out of it. Why are you weeping? You knew this was supposed to happen. That's not it either. I believe that they were saying, why are you weeping? With compassion and empathy to offer her opportunity to express her grief and to, and to get out what is so painful and upsetting. I would say that. If it was a Sunday morning and a, and, and a sister was standing in the back in tears, it would not be insensitive to go up and go, what's wrong? Why are you weeping? That's, that's what they're saying. Why are you weeping? Again, the bigger questions for me are not why was she weeping, but why wasn't she stunned by the angels? <laughs> why didn't she know it was Jesus? She's looking at him. Why didn't she know it was him? Some say, well, he was marred more than any man. So perhaps because of the beatings and the disfigurement, he just didn't look like Jesus anymore. I, I don't buy that one. Well, maybe it was like later that afternoon on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24 tells us their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. I, I don't buy that one either because that's not what John says. She just didn't recognize him. Why? All John says is she did not know it was Jesus. She didn't know it was him. No doubt, and I'll, I'll give a third possibility here, no doubt Jesus and his resurrected body looked different. There had to be some differences. Jesus' resurrected body would be distinctly new. This is now the resurrected state. I, I, I've told you this before. Jesus in his resurrection is the example of us in our resurrection. Even with walking through walls. I can't wait for that one. <laughs> Jesus in his resurrected state. Full, physical, bodily resurrection. Body, soul, and spirit. Jesus now is resurrected. And Mary sees him. Listen to Paul describe that. This is 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 42, so is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, which doesn't mean ghostly, doesn't mean spectral. It means spiritual to the fullest degree. Raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, Paul says, there's a spiritual body. So even in Paul's description, and by the way, I read that to you so you can know that's what we're looking for. That's where we're going. Yeah, this body's gonna be raised glorious. On my worst day, I can still say, 
got to be glorious. <laughs> this is where we're headed. This is what will happen for us and, and to us. And Mary's looking at Jesus, and he is in this resurrected state. So, so perhaps, perhaps, there's some difference. And so she's not recognizing. I actually think it's a whole lot more plain and simple than that. I think it's just because Mary's grieving. I think she's grieving, and grief can be consuming. And grief can make it difficult for us to even react. It can blunt our hearts to fear. Why is she not fearing the angels? She's grieving. She's not even, she, she knows they're there, but she's so upset, and she's weeping, and she's looking through tear-glazed eyes. Our vision gets glazed over with tears when we grieve. So we're not even seeing clearly, but Jesus tenderly comes to walk us through our grief. I love that in Mary's time of weeping, Jesus is there. He doesn't just pop on out to see the apostles. Ah, Mary will be fine. He's there for her. He meets her in her grief and he gives such tenderness. And that's, that's Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice Isaiah 42, verse three. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Isaiah 53, verse four. Or how about this? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which we are in prophetically right now. But listen to the rest of it. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all those who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Oaks of righteousness. You know what we are right now? We're the little acorns, but we're gonna be the oaks. And we're growing in that faith and in that trust, but sometimes it, it, it involves that grieving process, that mourning process, that sorrow. Well, he carries that, he bears that. And you know what we need more than anything else when we, like Mary, are grieving? We need to hear the voice of Jesus. That's what Mary needed to hear. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned and says to him in Hebrew, Rabunai. Rabunai. Which means, John says, teacher. Actually, it's even more. Rabunai. Rob in Aramaic, in Aramaic is sir. You say Rob something. Or rabbi. Rabbi would be honorable teacher. Rabuni. This is master teacher. Master teacher. Mary sees him. Rabuni. Not because her eyes were open, but her ears were. Note that in this personal moment of Mary's faith, faith comes by hearing before she even 
lays eyes on him, she hears him say her name, and she knows, and she believes. Rabunai, it's you. All because he spoke her name. She heard him. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, which is literally played out in this moment with Mary. He spoke, she heard, and then she saw. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Revelation 3, 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus comes calling his little lamb, Mary. He came knocking on her heart. He comes to her in her grief. She hears the simple sound of, her vo- of his voice speaking her name, And there's this rush of emotion, which I think we see in the text. A rush of emotion, and she cries, Rabuni, my master, she believes. As Isaiah 30, verse 21 says, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way walking it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. And she hears his voice behind her, and she turns. Jesus wants you to hear him. He wants us familiar with his voice but don't put words in his mouth. Don't assume what people will do, sadly, tragically, is we'll want to hear what we want to hear. I don't need to hear what I want to hear him say. I I don't need him to answer my questions. You know, I, I don't need him to explain himself to my satisfaction. This is a problem. This is a faith problem. And it's a problem often with believers and definitely with non-believers. Well, when he explains himself to me, that's not what you need to hear. You need to hear him say your name. You need to hear his voice. And in reality, all I need is to hear Jesus say, Rick, and I know everything's gonna be okay. I know it'll be fine. I don't need a theological treatise. I don't need to theorize anything to get the idea I just need to hear his voice. How do you know it was a rush of emotion? Because the first thing Jesus says to her then in verse 17 is stop clinging to me. (laughs) This is not a spiritual thing. This isn't don't touch me because I'm a specter and I can't be, I don't want your hand going through me, whoosh, and I'll disappear in a cloud of smoke. Stop clinging to me, Mary. Rabuni. And she wraps her, she just grabs hold of him and he has to say stop fastening, literally the word clinging to me is fastening yourself to me. Stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. That's a really good translation there. Stop clinging to me. I haven't left. He might as well say, Mary, I am right here. You don't have to hold on to me. I'm not not disappearing on you. I'm not gone. I have not yet ascended to the Father. She's holding on to him like she's never gonna let go again. I don't blame her. I think you and I would do the same thing. Seeing him resurrected like that, Jesus, Rabunai. No, 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 let go, it's okay, it's all good. But, he says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So I am gonna go. Not right now, I'm with you. It's fine, you can let go but I am going, I am ascending. This is amazing, this is the first time Jesus ever 
called his disciples my brethren. First time right here. Before that, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, they were his disciples, they were his servants. He called them friends. I no longer call you my slaves, I call you friends. And that's great. Now all of a sudden, for the first time, Jesus says, go tell my brethren. Matthew 28, verse 10 confirms it, same thing. Matthew says, yeah, Jesus said, go tell my brethren. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11 says, both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Wow. As she clung to him, Jesus now gently tells her, I I will ascend to my father and to your father. And I think it's a gentle way of preparing Mary that the time has come for her to let go of the Rabuni of the past. What? Yeah, the Rabuni, the master teacher who healed her of seven demons, the Bible tells us. Seven demons. What a powerful connection. And she followed him the rest of her life. She's healed by these demons, by, this, by this, this amazing Rabuni Jesus. And it's time for her to let go of that Jesus and begin to cling now to Jesus resurrected. What's the difference? That Jesus was a Jesus who could leave her. This Jesus is the one who never will. Same Jesus that walks with you and walks with me and sees us through our grief and our difficulties and our and hard times does never leave again. That's the rabbi Jesus we need to know. Second Corinthians 5:14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Listen, therefore. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that Rabuni he was, yet now we know him this way no longer. He is no longer the Jesus that may go away, that has an appointment in another town, that needs to go minister to other people, that doesn't have time right then to be with you because he has to be with them. He's no longer that Jesus. He is now the Jesus that we no longer see according to the flesh, but as our resurrected Lord, and he is with every one of us all the time. That's the Jesus we know. And it's time for Mary to let go of the Jesus as she knew him. And now to see him as the ever-present Christ and Lord, as a week later, Thomas would refer to him in verse 28, if you skip your eyes down there, my Lord and my God, that's the Jesus Mary needed to come to know. That's the Jesus, by the way, who hung around for 40 days to let the apostles understand that's who he is. Not who he was, who he is. The Jesus who is eternal and eternally with them. You know you don't have to cling to him because he never goes away. In fact, you don't have to cling to him because he's the one who said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You don't have to cling to him, why? Because he's clinging to you. He's got hold of you. Trust that. Mary Magdalene comes, verse 18, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Turns out Mary was not only the first evangelist because she comes, you know, telling these things. 
She's not only the first to bring the gospel to a lost and fearful group of people, Mary is the first and only female angel. Announcing here is the word angelusa, from the root word angelos. Angelos is messenger, angelusa is, is messaging. She comes messaging. She comes angeling. Mary comes to them like an angel. It's a really interesting use of the word here. Now, I mentioned the angels before that were in the tomb, one at the head and one at the feet. You know that angels show up in 34 out of the 66 books in the Bible. And of those 34, with perfect biblical symmetry, 17 books in the Hebrew Scriptures and 17 books in the New Testament will refer to angels for a total of 34 books. And there is not a single reference to an angel in the entirety of Scripture, please get this down, as a little baby, as a Victorian woman, or as a woman at all. Now, sisters, you're going to have to give me a little leeway here. There are no female angels in the Bible. Not a single one. They are always referred to in the masculine. They all look like men. Mark 16, verse one says when they went to the tomb, they saw a young man. And then Luke 24, verse four says when they were at the tomb, they saw two men. So it's only Matthew and John that call them out for what they were, angels. But the other gospel writers just say men because they look like men. They were male, they were masculine, they came across with that masculinity, and sisters, it's a masculinity I'm not even gonna try to explain. But you just need to know this is, this is the truth of it. Cheryl actually got me, I've told you for years that when they come out with a four-faced cherubim with eyes all over its wings as a tree topper, I'll put that on my tree. Cheryl got me uh, a little while ago a, a, little, a little ornament for the tree, and it is, it, it's an angel. The robes, got the wings, and it's a really studly black man. <laughs> I'm like, it's not my color. Okay. <laughs> Angels are male, according to Scripture, at least in terms of presentation. But, but listen to this, and, and this is where I could really get myself into some big trouble, but it's kind of fun. So why don't you turn over to 1 Corinthians <laughs> chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just for a moment, and, and we're gonna wrap things up, but you gotta hear this. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 11. Now this is one of those passages, I know that many of my pastor friends are thankful that they don't teach through the Bible because they'll never have to deal with this one. 1 Corinthians 11, verse eight. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Let's just get that straight. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, okay, commentary on that. Sisters, don't be offended by that. What that basically means is we were no good without you, okay? So <laughs> that's a good thing, right? And then verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Huh? Okay, let me explain that theologically. I have no idea what that means. I just don't. We'll find out. We'll find out there is something to do with righteousness and decorum and angels that says that a, a woman in, in the culture and in what was going on here in Corinth, a woman had to have some similar show of authority, which is why a woman would pray with her head covered because of the angels. 
Okay, but then Paul also says, but a, a woman's long hair is given to her as her covering. So I don't even know how all that works out. We're not gonna get into that tonight. But because of the angels, she has to have a symbol of authority. Here's where it all comes together. However, the Lord is neither in the Lord, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, as in taken from the side of Adam, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God, and that's really the bottom line. So male or female, regardless, we originate from God. So it really doesn't matter which came first, the male or the female. I mean, Adam came before Eve, but then, then you know, Seth came from Eve. So how do you figure? It's all, gonna, it's all gonna work out just fine. But Mary, like an angel, brings the first message of the gospel on the first day of eternal life. Why does Jesus choose her? Why does he give her this assignment? Should have been one of the men. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Well, in this case, it was her who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. But why does Mary get to tell? Peter and John were at the tomb, right? Now, I know Peter was theorizing and walked out of the tomb somewhat cloudy-minded and, and, and confused, but John believed. Why not appear to John and say, John, go grab Peter, and tell the rest of the boys, and tell the women too. You know, if it's this patriarchal, you know, view and perspective of women that the critics of the Bible try to claim, why does Mary get to be the first one? Maybe because the curse was lifted. Maybe because, well, Genesis 3.16 says to the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Which is the contention that goes to this very day. Your desire is gonna be to be in charge, but I'm gonna put him in charge. Oh man, that's, that's frustrating. That's a curse. That was the curse for the sin. Guess what? In Jesus, the curse is over. Woke ideologies won't get you there. Only the fully awakened, resurrected Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, with that, he still gives us unique roles to fill and to be fulfilled. I, I, this is my opinion. I think I can really back it up biblically, but I think men and women are most fulfilled when we function in the roles that God has given us. It's not about who is above. None of us are above anyone. We're all below Jesus. We're all his bondservants. We're bondservants together, and we serve together for the sake of the gospel. But we have different positions that he's given us, called us to, that when we function in those, we function to our, our, our most content. And that's what he's given us. But but here's, here's Mary coming with the message because Jesus levels the spiritual playing field so that men and women alike, regardless of role or position, has the right to bear the gospel message of our salvation. That is not limited to male or female. We all can bring the good news. And Mary just happens to be the first one called on to do it. So you wanna be angelic? Come announcing I have seen the Lord. Come tell the gospel 
story. Now, someone might say, okay, but Rick, I haven't seen the Lord. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Yes, you have if you have heard him because your faith is in him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And he himself has said, Hebrews 13, verse five, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So off Mary goes, a little extra hitch in her giddy up. So excited, so filled with faith, having seen the Lord, having her grief completely assuaged by his tenderness, hearing him call her name. I think the rest of her life, I almost can guarantee you, she could recall the sound of his voice saying, Mary. And what a beautiful sound that changed her life even more than it had been changed before. See, before seven demons were cast out, now her name is being spoken. It's just, it's so beautiful. Well, we're gonna actually leave the rest of the story until Sunday, until the first day of the week. But I told you earlier that John would explain why his resurrection record is so personally focused. That's why I've called this resurrection gets personal. Resurrection gets personal. Why does John tell it this way? We have had such a, a, a really deep focus on Jesus Go back to chapter 13. I mean, you can go back through the entire gospel of John, but man, when you hit 13, it is Jesus, 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 Jesus. It is all Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's looking at Jesus and hearing from Jesus and seeing the authority of Jesus throughout all of these chapters. And then suddenly we get to chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who's it about? Peter. Well, first Mary, and then Peter, and then John, and then Mary again, then it's gonna be the 10 that we see all these people in response and reaction to Jesus. And as I said to you, he doesn't even show up until verse 14. All this stuff has already taken place. Faith has already come. They haven't even seen him. And that's the point. The whole idea here is resurrection is personal. And John writes in verse 31 These have been written written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And now that you've heard it, guess what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word to us and, and for sharing this marvelous story. It is so much more than a story. This this great historical reality of Jesus resurrected. And I I do marvel, Father, because you present it to us through the eyes of Mary and Peter and John and ultimately Thomas a week later. And we can so relate to that. People who began to believe in you before they saw you, to believe in you because they heard you. And as you will tell Thomas and the boys, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Father, I pray that the resurrection of Jesus would be personal to each one of us, as personal to me as it was to Mary, as personal to me as it was to John or Peter or any of the rest. Father, may 2,000 years not separate us from the intimacy of the resurrected Jesus in our lives, because this is personal. Jesus, your resurrection, as you promised, is my resurrection. And it is because of your resurrection that I have been transferred from the kingdom 
of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I praise you for that. And we're so thankful. Thankful that our resurrection is right around the corner. Praise you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.